Imagine a world where forming policy was less about cutting through red tape and more about listening to people for building a better tomorrow. Two of the most widely discussed issues facing our society today center around climate and economic inequality. While many people are divided on these issues, there are a variety of ideas involving how they should be handled. We were curious to know what the younger generation thought about these topics. So in May 2021, we brought together more than 600 young people from across the country, some students, some non-students, some just out of high school, others closer to their 30th birthdays. They were all brought together online to discuss their insights on these issues in small groups. They then listened to panels of experts that answered their questions and interacted with each other regardless of whether they agreed on the topics being discussed. From the team that brought you Voices of America in One Room, this is Voices of Shaping Our Future. My name is Alice. I'm the Associate Director at the Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford University. In this episode of Voices of Shaping Our Future, we had the pleasure of talking with Harrison and Cade, two 23-year-old graduate students who participated in our event. While Harrison could be considered more liberal in his viewpoints, Cade may be classified as slightly more conservative in his approach to certain issues. In today's discussion, we dive into what exactly national service is and get their insights into the minimum wage and economic inequality debate in 2021. Kate is currently a graduate student at Swanee, the University of the South in Tennessee. Kate is currently working on his master's in theology and is originally from Sugarland, Texas. Harrison is also a graduate student who is earning his master's degree in public policy and management at Carnegie Mellon University. Harrison is an AmeriCorps member and is currently situated in Philadelphia. Let's meet Harrison and Kate and learn more about their thoughts following the Shaping Our Future virtual experience. We begin our discussion with Cade. Here are his thoughts on the minimum wage debate, the viability of universal basic income, and the idea of national service versus being a more active member within one's own individual community. It is so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. I am so interested to hear about your experience, what it was like talking with some strangers for a weekend about these policy issues. Uh, But first, tell us who you are, where you're living, what you do, anything you'd like to share with us. Sure thing. Uh, I'm Kata Archer. Uh, I'm currently going to school, working on a master's degree in theology at the University of the South in Suwannee. Tennessee. Uh, I did my undergrad at Lyon College in Batesville, Arkansas, and uh, I grew up in Sugarland, Texas. So I've been sort of working my way eastward. So the first day, we spent a lot of time talking about electoral college and um, specifically ranked choice voting and the national popular vote. Um, What was the discussion in your group like about those topics? Well, I definitely remember that there was very briefly discussion about, you know, it being difficult or something like that. Um, but I think we all pretty quickly agreed that it, it really was not. I mean, um, I, at least that was my opinion, that 
I don't think we thought it was going to be too difficult for people to figure out. Um, so I think it was more along the lines of, I might be kind of paraphrasing or not remembering exactly how it went, um, but it was more along the lines of there would be some kind of massive, you'd have obviously more choices, um, but garnering, we you'd end up with like a second or third favorite overall, I think. Right. Um, let me, I'm trying to remember exactly how we, it's not coming out as articulately if I, uh, as I might have no, remembered. No, that's, um, that's okay. That's okay. Okay. Um, All right. And I think we just generally had some questions about going through multiple rounds. You might end up with somebody mm-hmm. towards the end who was kind of many people's second favorite, but nobody right. favorite. Right. No one's like super excited about exactly the, exactly the and then the, i think i think that kind of led into us asking questions about turnout and things like that because already voter turnout is very low mm-hmm. um and i think adding some of these processes in additional steps might not be conducive to increasing that now moving on to the second day the couple of proposals that um some other groups really talked about was uh, minimum wage and also universal basic income. How were those discussions like in your group? I think, again, this was another two topics that garnered a lot of heated debate um, and conversation. Um, And I think at least my position, and I would say the position that the majority came to hold perhaps within our group, um, was that the minimum wage on a federal level is not something that I, I think we had problems with the idea that it should be federally mandated and changed. I mean, obviously we have one and I think there should be a, a, a basement, which is kind of what it serves as now. Um, mm-hmm. But we, I think, came to the conclusion that changing the minimum wage um, was perhaps more beneficial if done on the state level. Um, just due to the fact that cost of living varies significantly from state to state and sometimes even within individual states. Um, so that, you know, a $15 minimum wage in California, I mean, I I think I'll perhaps bring up California a lot in these discussions, but it seems to be a good, um, instance to point to just because it's so different in a lot of the country in some ways. Um, $15 minimum wage there means a lot different than $15 in Arkansas, right? And we had similar thoughts about a universal basic income as well. Um, I'm not sure exactly what numbers were thrown around. I know Andrew Yang, when he was um, primarying um, a while ago, was, you know, that was a big talking point of his. I cannot remember exactly what number he was he was saying, I believe it was in the neighborhood of $1,000 a month or something like that. Um, yeah, I think so. And for me, currently, $1,000 a month would, I, I also don't have roommates, would cover my rent uh, and utilities. Where wow. as somebody living, right, I mean, in, you know, even somebody living in Nashville, in Tennessee, would, str- I think, you know, that might pay a majority 
of their rent, but it, it, it would certainly be a significantly greater boon to me, whereas it might just be, you know, a nice addition, but not the kind of massive, you know, comeuppance um, that it would be for other people. I'm so glad you bring this up. Is that okay? Is that okay that, um, you know, for you, it would cover so much of your basic needs, you know, as you said, rent, et cetera. And, and then for someone in that's living somewhere that's more expensive would, um, I don't see it as something that's like unjust, you know what I mean? And, Oh, we shouldn't do it because the, the outcome is not equal. I don't think that at all. I just think that I have personally, and this is something that came up in discussions as well, some concerns about, um, inflation was something that came up a lot and you know whether raised in taxation or however this would inevitably lead there's going to be more money right i mean if we're paying every american a thousand dollars a month you know we've seen a recent wave of stimulus checks related to the coronavirus um and things like that and that's a lot of money that was essentially printed i mean i, I i'm not a overly intelligent person i'm not super deep into economics but um, that is my understanding of it. I think that the cost of, in terms of inflation or other unintended consequences of giving away money in this kind of way, I think outweighs the benefit on the whole to everybody. Where it would be real, even if you know, notwithstanding how much of a benefit it would be for me, as opposed to somebody else in a city or a place that had a higher um, cost of living. Not a lot of people believe what you do because so many people that I've heard um, talk about the universal basic income would say that that's, that's inequitable, like that that's not fair kind of thing. And I wonder, you know, is there underlying value that speaks to you on that, or or is that how or is that how fairness should be viewed, um, and as as you describe it? I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants here, so I don't know. If <laughs> I know, I know, I tricked you into this question. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and you you mentioned earlier. Um, you, you so you said in that question, kind of an underlying value or an understanding, right. perhaps about fairness right. that I have. Um, So I'm going to do a bad job of relaying this parable, but you said at the beginning of the discussion, we might be able to tie a little bit of my theology study, whatever we're talking about here. Yes. Um, Yeah. And there is a parable uh, in the New Testament um, about a man who owns a vineyard and goes out into the market in the daytime and hires day laborers. And he goes out at sunrise and hires some people to help harvest and a couple hours go by and he realizes he needs more help so he goes back again gets another batch of people this happens three or four times right until maybe four in the afternoon is the last time you know that he goes in and brings some more people back and the job for the day is done at dusk let's say and when it's time to meet out payment uh everyone is paid a full day's wage Wow. The people that work from dusk or from dawn until dusk mm-hmm. uh, say, wait a second, this is not fair. I wasn't given more because I did more work. Um, to which the reply is, 
you were paid what we agreed upon and how does him you know the other worker um being paid any more than you mean that you got any less right so i don't know yeah. if that's a entirely applicable um absolutely but i think if we don't think about this universal basic income or money in general as a uh, if my brother has more i have less but rather mm -hmm. i've got something and so mm -hmm. does everyone else um i think it just takes a little bit of a sort of a shift of our frame of reference perhaps to come to that kind of understanding yes you're right it really does it takes us shifting what we what we think is is fair and what you describe your example is so apt in explaining um your view uh, on on the ubi it it was it's very clear thank you for sharing that well i'm glad i'm glad it worked out i hope for those of you listening that that makes some type of sense it does it really does because you know for myself i as I am listening to the pros and the cons of these arguments that, as you said, that tie to minimum wage and, and also tie to universal basic income, I see the merits on both sides. I, I understand when people raise the issue of the differences in the urban and rural divide, and I hear the stories, the anecdotes. I struggle to reconcile uh, those arguments. And it makes it difficult for me to really say clearly, um, well, it's clearly a yes on this, or it's clearly a no on this. Um, and I think many of us struggle as well in trying to understand what is the right thing to do. Right. I mean, nuance and shades of gray, I think, are things that people don't tend to do very well, especially, you know, when it's in the abstract and it's such a large issue like this. Um, mm -hmm. But this is, you know, these would be two of the better examples I think that you could come up with of things that are absolutely dripping with nuance and shades of gray. Given that you are dedicating your life to theology, what is your broader view about service? Those that serve, you know, that work in AmeriCorps or Peace Corps or some types of public service, you know, they obviously have a certain mindset and see the value in in that. Um, so just broadly talking about service in general, I, I, I'd love to hear about your view on service and and whether you think that it should be some kind of more organized fashion um, or whether it's more of an individual choice to decide when and where for what people serve? Um, I think for me personally, in instances where I have, you know, done volunteer work or things like that, I think I've found greater fulfillment in kind of smaller, very local type organizations. I'm not the type of, um, I, it's just, I, it's never, I've never felt sort of a calling or a desire go out on sort of a larger, greater, more organized level. Um, like I have done things at, you know, through churches and things like that, um, but never sort of this broad, again, large governmental organization. 
uh, type thing. And I certainly think that it can be something that could be very good. And I think that, you know, for people that, that feel that way and do want to engage in that kind of thing, to have that option and for it to be a viable, like, real thing that, you know, they could potentially parlay into a career or sort of use a springboard to develop some skills, I think absolutely that's something that should be available. For me personally, I'm unsure about how I would feel about it. You know, it's not something that I am particularly excited about, um, but I also don't think it is a bad thing, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That makes sense. I think we all have our own, as you said, we all have our own calling. We all have our own passion, things that we like to do. And and as you said, for you and for many people, probably what they want to do is probably more local, more within their own community. I I want to actually touch on a comment you made uh, about California and Texas. And maybe it's I'm sensitive to it just because I'm in California and I spent my life here. And I, I remember I remember now that um, you said that you were surprised in the group that there were people from different parts of the country. You were pleasantly surprised by that. I'd love to hear more. Sure. I, I mean, I, I think we would all be lying to ourselves if we didn't have at least some kind of inkling of the way that we thought about other people from other parts of the country. You know what I mean? I, I went into the thing thinking, okay, so this is a thing that is through Stanford, which is, you know, uh, a big quality university. It's, you know, much more, I mean, it's a liberal type environment. Uh, yes, California absolutely. Like uh, so I was like, okay, so I'm going to be, you know, the, the, the hick from small town, Texas, and living in Tennessee now who comes in and is going to have some ideas that are, you know, going to be radically different than what I think, what I thought the majority of the people uh, that were going to be doing this kind of thing would have thought. Um, and it ended up not being like that at all. It was very unpronounced. And I think that there was a great mix of people from very urban uh, locales as well as more rural. And I think that is a much greater signifier of kind of where somebody might fall on that ideological binary. You know, if you live in a very urban environment versus a much more rural one. Um, and I think I saw that kind of play out a little bit more than, you know, what is semi-arbitrary in state lines or anything like that. That makes a lot of sense. And it really ties into the built-in or, well, I guess rather learned stereotypes that we have. And I am so glad that you were pleasantly surprised by the event and the makeup of your group. I'd love to hear more from you, whether from your theology or not, just generally your thoughts about economic inequality. Like, what does that mean to you and how you think it is manifested? Um, I, I'm just actually curious about your thoughts. Sure thing. Um, this one was actually kind of funny because it was the first one in the email that you sent me before we had this discussion. It was the very first question at the top. Um, it <laughs> seems like when you look at it on face value, a very straightforward, kind of easy question to wrap your head around. And it is. But when I was trying to think of what I would say and come up with an answer to it, it was much more amorphous 
um, that I might have anticipated just because really sitting down and trying to kind of articulate exactly what I thought about it um, proved and is proving to be a little bit more difficult um, than I thought it might have been. Um, I think the only thing I could really for sure say about it is I think it's probably in the top three of the issues that I think we're facing in the country that's really dividing us, I think, in creating unrest um, in a way that I'm not, you know, I'm 23. I'm sure that there are 60-year-olds out there who have lived through more and seen more than I have who might have a different opinion on this, but I don't know if we've ever, things have ever been so uneasy. Mm. You know, I, I, I think about the future and I'm not overly optimistic. Um, right. And I think that this issue is one of the primary driving factors that's creating the social tension that we mm-hmm. see. Yeah, it's, um, I, I can't agree with you more since we just talked about the grim future that we both see. Um, yeah. I, I wonder um, what kind of um, thoughts you have to share with our listeners as, as we're closing. You know, I think it benefits all of us. If you get involved in your communities, you know, on the smallest level that you can um, or that you even feel like it. You know, uh, I think that as crazy as the world and all these big picture issues that we've been talking about uh, might seem, you can control what's going on directly in front of you. And I think if you get enough people on the same page doing that, suddenly these big picture issues are much less issues. I think we are kind of living in a, you know, communities that are much lower trust than they might've been 30 or 40 years ago, even. Um, I think if we can sort of build up that, granular that small time fabric maybe that's the answer because I, I i don't know kate i am so grateful to have had this conversation with you and i hope that our listeners will listen to you and <laughs> and build some trust whatever that may be and take little steps in helping our society regain the trust that we need We end our discussion with Harrison. Here are his thoughts on universal basic income being used to help curb economic inequality and resolving the climate crisis sooner rather than later in order to minimize the impact it's having on us now and will have on us in the future. Thank you, Harrison, for joining us today. I am thrilled to be talking to you about your experience at Shaping Our Future and learning more about what it was like for you to talk with a group of strangers for the weekend. Uh, but first, I'd like I'd like uh, our listeners to learn more about you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it was a wonderful experience. I might have to say that first, um, participating with uh, Shaping Our Future. But the, right now I'm calling in from Philadelphia, PA. I'm currently an AmeriCorps service member. Uh, I was serving out of Philadelphia this past year with the organization called City Year. 
Um, it's an educational nonprofit. We provide a lot of services for the, the public schools in Philadelphia and other urban environments. What we do is we partner with the schools. We provide people like myself, the AmeriCorps members, to certain schools that we partner with. And we provide socio-emotional support for the students at those schools. And we also um, supply some sort of tier one support is what we call it, but it's in-class um, support. So whenever the teacher is giving the instruction, we kind of support and facilitate uh, in that fashion. And then pull students aside that need a little bit of extra support. Um, this next year, I'm going to be an AmeriCorps member again, serving with City Year, but just in Boston. So I'm looking forward to moving pretty soon. This could be a whole nother conversation about AmeriCorps and national service. But I do have to ask, since it is related in the sense we did talk about national service at the event, um, I'm curious what made you first decide to join AmeriCorps? Um, I haven't been asked that one in a while. <laughs> I think the last person that asked me that question was my grandmother. <laughs> because um, a year ago, I had the opportunity to participate in a public policy fellowship. I was offered a position in Pittsburgh, and that was right before the pandemic, or it was right before COVID was um, considered a pandemic. And it was going around spreading, and I saw a lot of the, the challenges that people were facing and sort of the eminent economic catastrophe was kind of looming over people's minds. And I thought to myself that I couldn't really go through a fellowship program that was solely going to benefit me and grow my capacities, expand my capacities. So I looked to service and I looked to the organization City Year, which is an AmeriCorps organization, of course. And I felt like giving myself back to the community was the best thing for me and also the community that I was living in. Um, so I was kind of drawn to service just because I felt like there was a call, right? I had this sort of impulse to help others and that's why i'm going down the public policy path i just felt like i would be turning my back on my values if i did not start um or give a year of service which turned into two now um maybe even more down the line because i honestly the more that i give in service the more i feel like this is the right place for me but i i really felt like i was turning it back on my values uh, so I, I had to go down the service route this past year just because of all of the the things that COVID surfaced in our country, I felt like that was the best thing for me and the community around. Man, that was that was so heartfelt, so touching and amazing um, to be talking to you about this. Um, and thank you for uprooting your decisions and serving your community. It's so hard to find people that are willing to do that. This begs me to just jump right into the conversation that your group had, um, because one of the discussion topics was about national service specifically for climate, uh, stemming from uh, the um, proposal from the current administration to have a climate core. There are a lot of criticisms about national service, obviously. What are what are those cons that people always say? Well, I think that it's kind of two pronged. One is more so an individual, almost attack, uh, the way that I perceive it. Someone is saying that you're wasting your year, right? You're not developing skills enough to position yourself so that you can really step into the economy and support our economy. You're you're a volunteer for an entire year. You're not really building those sharp, hard skills so that you can become a part of the economy. And I, from one perspective, I do understand what they're saying, but this kind of 
my response to what they say is also a response to the other the other prong that is that it's a, a waste right like you're you're giving your year to service to community building and some people don't see the long-term benefits and with a sociology background i absolutely see the benefit. this is one of the most valuable things any nation can have is national service right it's a nation building practice national service is giving back to the nation you're building a community that's nationwide and for our multi i'm sorry multicultural um sort of endeavor the american creed the multicultural american creed to support that you need a service sector or national service sector that's giving back and building those bridges between different ethnicities races and communities these are the things that really weave together a social fabric that's robust and durable right that lasts an eternity and right now there are a lot of deep social divisions that are creating even bigger political issues um and national service is the remedy to a lot of our political issues because it brings our society closer together which allows us to address those issues that are larger um, in, in relation to um, the, the climate core, this is something that's a global crisis. Climate change is a global crisis. And it's something that can unite us as a nation, right? So everybody is going to face the effects of climate change. Um, however, in varying ways, right? I think economic equality, inequality is a topic later, but that's also related to this conversation here because some people are going to uh, disproportionately face the effects of climate change. But the United States needs something that we can kind of unify ourselves around. And I think if we invest ourselves into national service and into an issue that is universal in its impact, it, it, it's almost it's, it's begging to be the center of our national service programs. Right. This is something that is universal and it. it I, I just don't see any other way around it. We need things that are going to be building bridges between our communities, and we need something that's going to resolve the climate crisis because it's going to have disastrous economic impacts. It's going to have disastrous social impacts. Um, it, you can see in areas where there are food, uh, like, for example, soil erosion, um, the foods are driving conflict. The lack of food in certain areas are driving conflict. Um, People are going to become not just economic migrants, but environmental migrants because of the disasters in Latin America. We're already seeing forces from conflicts. I mean, that's more so from the 20th century are in interventions in Latin America. But um, we're going to see more and more of this push towards areas that are least impacted by environmental crisis um, from the environmental pressures in areas that are more vulnerable. Thank you, Harrison, for deep diving into that. You're so passionate about this topic. And I wonder what your group was thinking. Like, did anything, did anyone not buy the idea of national service? Um, I, I think that our conversation, um, it consisted of a lot of people who were skeptical, skeptical about the true impacts of national service. Because a lot of the language that, I, for example, in my previous response, talking about nation building is so abstract. And I can come across as like having my head in the clouds sometimes because I'm talking about these really big challenges and these big impacts. Yet in our material lives, how are they manifesting? And I think a lot of people were asking those practical questions like, 
okay, the climate core, what are they going to be doing on a daily basis that's really tackling this monstrous, huge challenge? And I think we got really kind of caught in the weeds digging through what that really means. What's a day in the life of the climate core? And that kind of bogged down our conversation a little bit because a lot of us didn't have a lot of previous experience with maybe volunteer work or even just some sort of environmental activity like recycling. I know that sounds so simple, but like without a background, a sufficient background in either, it was kind of hard to see the middle ground. What What is a national service that's de um, designated for tackling the climate crisis, right? And we were real, people were just really skeptical about what could a collection of people who were just volunteers that were paid for by the public going to do um, on a daily basis. And I think that just those questions, not having a concrete answer or information about what these people were doing is what made people skeptical. In principle, they were very supportive. They almost universally, because we, like you said, I think it was 18 to 29, everybody was very young and that demographic tends to um, perceive the climate crisis as more legitimate and more serious um, than other generations. And so for I, I don't think we struggled much convincing anybody that this is an eminent danger and this is something that's a real threat. But we did talk about what what's pretty much the most effective way to tackle it. And to me, because I know what national service is like, but I, I don't have the most extensive background in environmental work. I still saw the value in creating a climate corps because it's a nation building practice. We have deep divisions right now that are surfacing more so than ever in the last 40 years. And I do believe that that sort of program that's designed to tackle a universal challenge would really bring us together and build bridges. But then at the same time, the environmental challenge of climate change is so large that all of these little activities are like cleaning up a beach how much of that is really tackling the challenge? Because I, I tend to believe that we need a lot more legislative um, forces to like reduce plastic. I, I'm actually a proponent that we need to eliminate plastic use, single plastic use. Um, we need to put a carbon tax in place. We need to take really, really big steps that require legislative action, not just people cleaning up after the fact. Um, so that that's really where our conversations were. And people had legitimate concerns about the effectiveness of a, a, a climate core member. I wonder, how do we get people closer into understanding what national service is? That's a that's a really great question. Um, and if I had the answer to that, I'd probably be the head of AmeriCorps because that is a, that is that is a really deep question. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you get there. Uh, how to how to motivate people to volunteer their time is kind of how I was perceiving that question. And honestly, I think it's speaking the language of each person. Like each person has a collection of interests and values that really motivate them at their core. And Full disclosure, I worked on a political campaign before, and it is like prying teeth out of people, trying to get them to volunteer their time, to make phone calls, to deliver literature and do things like that. It's so hard to convince somebody to do that. And then you have these people who are super volunteers. That's what we would deem them, who 
do it for hours on end and it is just their life and it just speaks to them so that sort of that activity it just aligns so much with their interests and their values that it, they found their calling if you will and i think that speaking to people in their own language i mean the climate core might not be for everyone because it might not align with their interests and values and maybe their perceived challenges or whatever they think is important in life, right? However, they prioritize the challenges that we face as a community, as an individual, as a nation and all these different levels. Um, and so just really convincing people or not even convincing, but presenting people with different opportunities to volunteer their time for different problems is something that I think would really motivate people because it's just it's like finding that connection, building or igniting that kind of fire inside them is the process of walking them to their interests. This is how you can sort of satisfy your own calling. This is how you can satisfy the the, the passion that you have, right? Uh, and that's something that I, I don't know if there is a, such a thing as like a, a volunteer matchmaker, but there there's something that there's maybe potential there for something because um, I, I've met many people who never really thought that they were service oriented, but then they found some issue or cause that they were really attached to. And it just drew them in. It, it took a hold of them, um, and they it, like fundamentally changed what they thought volunteering meant, and how it impacts a community, and how it changes their perspectives on the world. It, it I agree with you. It always takes um, some individualized, personalized connection that, in order to kind of make that light switch go up um and i also have to say you know for no we touched on you touched on us a little bit about economic inequality and i'm thinking in my head right now what about the people that can't afford to do national service mm. or can't afford to volunteer or, or don't have the luxury to have that option mm -hmm. um i i wonder you know i'm sure you've been asked those questions uh, but i maybe there's a listener out there that really would love to be a part of americorps but mm -hmm. they can't even consider it financially because it just doesn't make sense right to them and and i wonder how you would handle that situation? That's a fantastic question. I, hmm. I'm reluctant to give like a quick answer because I feel like <laughs> that's a really hard, hard question. No, it is hard. It is hard. And I, and I ask it because, um, you know, I know that, uh, and as you know, very well, you know, people in AmeriCorps, those that serve, you don't get paid very much either. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're, you're doing this because you, you love it and you believe mm -hmm. in it. And for those that are low income, that are, you know, earning low wages and those that want to serve in some way and feel like it's not possible. I, I wonder what's the answer for them, mm -hmm. um, whether they should advocate for you know trying it or whether they can double up on things and mm -hmm. i don't know what the answers are and but i i 
would love to be able to tell them that it's possible in some way to serve and um, earn at the same time. And I, um, I hope at some point there could be a program like that. Yeah. I, I think it, by bringing in economic inequality into our conversation about service, I feel like there needs to be some sort of wealth building dimension incorporated in the benefits for AmeriCorps service. I feel as though that if we want to disrupt a lot of the economic inequality in the United States, we need to talk about wealth inequality. And if we attach some sort of wealth building dimension to your service experience or your service benefits, um, we might be able to provide the people who are reluctant to enter into or to give their year to service because it's not economically feasible, right? Maybe providing people with, I don't know, better rates for loans or maybe some sort of like you get a service card, right? And after doing a year of service, your rate, your interest rates on loans are lower. If you want to buy a home, maybe a portion of it is covered by the government. I'm not exactly sure how it would manifest, what it would look like, but just something that can help an individual or a family or a community develop their wealth and disrupt the economic inequality, the real wealth inequality in the United States. And I wonder, your your group probably didn't talk about the universal basic income in conjunction with the national service, but for you, I you know since we're here together, I wonder whether you think those two go hand in hand. If if there if a universal basic income existed, um, that perhaps would allow people to pursue jobs, opportunities, serve in ways that they otherwise couldn't okay so i i feel like now that we're introducing that to the ubis into this i feel like i need to zoom out a little bit too because sometimes sometimes people focus on issues at a very granular level and we talk about ubis do you believe in it in principle i think is pretty much the first question that you must address before you can even have a real conversation about it and then beyond that you get really, really caught up in the weeds and it doesn't really go anywhere, right? And then, for example, what we were just talking about with the climate court and um, how do we entice people to volunteer their time? How do we appeal to people who it's just not economically wise to do a year of service when you have a family to support or you just are not in a position, you need to have income to actually support yourself and sustain your life. Talking about these as independent things can sometimes close our uh, or blind us to bigger um, solutions or better solutions. So zooming out and saying, if we're going to tackle wealth wealth inequality in the United States, maybe not incorporating those benefits into AmeriCorps, like I was just suggesting a minute ago, maybe that's not the best thing. A universal basic income might actually be the best avenue, um, which would also boost the the amount of people that would volunteer their times because now they feel like that they have at least something to fall back on they have some sort of economic security so now they can begin to volunteer their hours so it might free up a a certain percentage of the population who are literally bound by economic insecurity um, from volunteering their time 
So by providing a universal basic income, we might have a flood of volunteers who jump over into AmeriCorps just because the fact that they feel more secure. Um, so I feel like it depends on what what sort of issue we're talking about when we're talking, like if we're trying to tackle wealth inequality, maybe working with these, maybe using universal basic income to jump the rates of, or jumpstart the rates of people who volunteer their hours. I, I'm, I think I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> the guy kind of like- No, I think you're, no, I think you're right. Like, we have to zoom out sometimes instead of focusing on really like the issues um, as though they were kind of individual or right. not associated with anything else or connected to anything else. So universal basic income, though, in principle, is something that I support. And when we're talking about welcome wealth inequality, that's something that I think can really, really disrupt what's been in place for a number of years. I mean, it was set in motion a long time ago, but we can really begin to offset some of those effects that have really taken place for, uh, from as far as I'm aware, some of the the, the biggest examples or best examples um, is home ownership, home ownership and the wealth that we derive from our home ownership, and providing a universal basic income would allow people to well, have a place to stay. You can cover rent without even sweating it. Um, beyond that, you can begin to play, pay on your mortgage. You can guarantee to a loaner that I will make my payments because I have a universal basic income. I have sustained income regardless of what happens to me for my employment. Uh, but I think you were asking too, like there are people that push back and people look at the, the price tag associated with that. And that's going to, I think it's going to take a lot of negotiating and also a lot of perspective shifting or kind of just changing people's perspective in a, in a sense that if we were to implement a universal basic income, um, we would then have to strip a lot of our social services because that is probably where a lot of the money used in a universal basic income will go. Um, a lot of individuals use that to just sustain their life. Uh, because it will cover, a, a, I wouldn't say a majority, but a, a fair amount of your basic necessities. And I think that is an avenue for um, reconciliation between the two sides on this conversation, or the way the two political parties, at least the way that I see it. There, If you were to really, really zoom out and look at the political parties and their stances on universal basic income, the the way I think to reconciliation is down this path that we would just have to restructure our, our, our social um, security, not not really our social security, but our, the social services in the United States, because the universal basic income will be used to support a lot of the services that the social services already support. Uh, it's going to be it's a very difficult conversation, but I think that might be a good avenue to build a common understanding and a, and a shared vision on what UBIs could provide people and how they could be useful for the United States. I wonder if your group had also the same conversation with respect to the minimum wage that was also discussed as as a proposal under the economic inequality topic. Was it a similar discussion? It was a similar conversation, um, except there was one thing that really gripped everybody's attention it really took everybody and we went down this one path somebody brought up 
on-job training and suggested that that was the better path to go than raising the minimum wage. So instead of raising the minimum wage, he proposed that we should adopt a system that funds on-the-job training. So people, instead of getting paid more, receive skills-based training so that they can prepare themselves to move up to a higher paying position later down the line. Um, that also presupposes that low income or low paying jobs are a necessity in a sense. And I don't know if I necessarily believe that low paying jobs are a necessity. Um, I, I, I tend to believe that the standard of living should be met by the lowest paying job. And in many areas across the country, I don't believe that standard is being met. People are working two to three jobs. Both uh, parents in a household are working two to three jobs in some circumstances, and that's just not acceptable. And to a certain degree, I almost view it as inhumane because people, I, I think people have a right to spend time with their family, raise their family. Like they have the right to live a happy, healthy life. And if we are not providing them with the means, our society is not providing them with the means to do so, if we're depriving them of that right, then that to me is in some degree inhumane. And I think that we need to then restructure our systems in order to provide those people with those opportunities. Um, and that would be providing them with higher paying jobs. And the way I see it, um, at least in the groups with our, our, I'm sorry, the group conversations, a few people were agreeing that a lot of technology is going to displace a lot of different jobs. And it's the, the technology is going to take away some jobs. And I'm, I'm speaking very abstract, but technology will disrupt many jobs in America. For example, right now there are about 3 million truck drivers on the road. When driverless cars are introduced, um, it's more cost effective for an organization to have a driverless vehicle going down the streets. Well, that also depends on how like insurance pans out on like accidents and things like that. What's more prospect? But uh, it, it might be more cost effective for a company to have a fleet of three million driverless cars than three million truck drivers. And I don't see on-the-job training being a solution for a truck driver that loses his job to a robot. It was so wonderful to talk to you today, and. I, I want to give you a chance to share any last thoughts, um, words, concerns that you may have for your peers in this age cohort or um, any encouragement you have for people that are listening to you today. In the spirit of building common understanding and sort of like this kind of reconciliation for a lot of the deep social divisions in our country, turn to your peers that's what I would encourage people to do is just turn to your peers and ask them about these topics. Don't turn to your device. Ask your peers the deep questions that you're going to ask Google. <laughs> ask, ask those neighbors who are very friendly with you that you that drive your kids to school or that you share dinners with on the weekends, things like that. Ask them these questions and you can hope to come to a better understanding of how these these issues really manifest in our society because so much online is askew so much is presented in a way that's not accurate and we really need to kind of take off these goggles which our devices have put on us and begin to see reality in the same way 
We need to have a shared understanding of what's going on in this country. And we need to have more conversations. And what you're doing with um, shaping our future is you're basically manufacturing these conversations, if you will. Like you are creating these spaces and bringing people from different backgrounds into a shared um, space to have the conversations that needs to be had so that we can begin to resolve some of the issues in the country that have been festering for quite some time. And some of the new ones that are incredibly pressing, the ones that have been festering are actually now an impediment to the challenges that we face that are current, right? The technology is disrupting so many different sectors um, and it's, it's only going to get worse. It really is only going to get worse. I mean, the Industrial Revolution was 200 years ago. We're still trying to patchwork our way around the impacts of the Industrial Revolution. And we're going through another revolution now, which is the Digital Revolution. So it's like they're just stacking on top of one another. And if we we stop communicating with one another, it's going to be the end. That's that. And right now, I think that we have the, the technology that we use to communicate almost is like having on drunk goggles like it's really it's disrupting the way that we see the world and it's interfering with our abilities to connect with people on a real human level and so talk to your neighbors talk to your friends bring them in have dinners have these conversations that need to be had because that's really how we solve issues and that's how we build common understanding until we build community and those are the things we need to do in order to overcome some of these big challenges Thank you, Harrison, for being with us today. It has been a fabulous conversation. I am so thrilled that I got to learn so much more about who you are, the values you hold as a person, and um, all the communities you're serving. Um, I can't wait to see what other communities you're going to serve in the future or you know, what other leadership positions that you'll be holding down the line. I'm excited to see what's in store for you. Thank you so much for being with us. From the Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford University, the Bergruen Institute, and the Haas Center for Public Service at Stanford University, this has been Voices of Shaping Our Future. If you like our series, be sure to tell your friends to subscribe, and we encourage you to start your own conversations about the very topics we're discussing this season. The Voices of Shaping Our Future podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and is hosted by me, Alice Sue. To learn more about me, you can find me on the Center for Deliberative Democracy's website, linked in the show notes. To learn more about the Bergruen Institute or the Haas Center for Public Service at Stanford University, please visit their websites also linked in the show notes. Voices of Shaping Our Future is produced by Scott Simpson and Amy Locker and edited by Josh Williams. This series is executive produced by the Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford University, the Bergruen Institute, the Haas Center for Public Service at Stanford University, and Toby Agency.